everybody. Welcome to OK Talks. I'm your host, Oliver Kendall. I'm a lifelong political nerd with an academic background in international relations focused on security policy and real-world experience working in the U.S. domestic political space and living in a number of other countries than my own, all of which combined, I think, positions me fairly well both to interpret for my international audience what's going on in the politics of my own country and to shed light for some of the folks back home on some events of note going on in the rest of the world. So about a year and a half ago, I did an episode on Republican hypocrisy. I checked. It was episode 18 of the show, if anyone's curious. I touched on a number of areas in which this is particularly evident. Notably, their constant claims to be the most patriotic patriots ever to patriot, while also showing themselves to be not only willing to allow, but in fact often actively working to bring about severe damage to the United States if ever a Democratic president dare lead it. One of the ways in which they've done that in the recent past has involved the debt ceiling, which I briefly describe in that episode, but we've now reached another debt ceiling crisis which looks way scarier than the last one. My foreign audience could very much be forgiven for not understanding what the debt ceiling is. Hell, so could my American audience. The thing makes absolutely no sense. So with that being the case, in this episode, I'm going to explain why it's a thing, why it's in the news again, and why it's solid evidence that Republicans at least the ones elected to national office who actually understand what the debt ceiling is, as some elected Republicans really seem not to, that those particular Republicans at least hate Democrats far more than they love the United States or liberal Western civilization more broadly. But before I do, first off, apologies in advance for potentially worse than usual sound quality. I'm traveling again and don't have my usual mic with me. Second, if you haven't already, please go subscribe to the show, fire off a review, and share the show with other people you think of who might be interested in learning about the U.S. from the outside looking in and global affairs from the U.S. looking out. I know the obligatory please go like and subscribe is everyone's least favorite part of every piece of content ever produced, but it really is helpful to getting the show off the ground, so I'm sorry, and please go do all those things. All done? Great. Okay, so with that out of the way, I'm going to just share a brief history of how we got to where we are now vis-a-vis -vis this looming crisis. For a long time in the United States, if Congress ever appropriated funding for something that was more than the amount of money that happened to be right just then in the Treasury, Congress had to separately authorize the Treasury Department every time it had to take out a loan to pay for something. This became untenable during the First World War when the amount of money the government needed to spend increased really sharply and Congress just couldn't keep up. So a mechanism was created called the debt ceiling, whereby rather than having to authorize every single loan, Congress could instead authorize Treasury to borrow up to a specified amount in order to pay for stuff. The problem then becomes, as we'll see in a minute, what happens if Congress spends a bunch of money on stuff and then turns around and refuses to give Treasury the authorization to pay for that stuff? One might reasonably weigh in at this point and say, hang on a minute, this seems stupid. Why should Treasury have to get permission from Congress to pay for the things that Congress already bought? This feels unnecessarily complicated. Well, as some of my Waldorf preschool teachers used to tell me when I would ask difficult and annoying questions that don't lend themselves to very good answers, huh, gee, yeah, I wonder. But in any case, stupid or not, this was the system that was set up a little over 100 years ago. And after the whole debt ceiling thing was created, it went on to join a whole bunch of other institutions in U.S. politics. Like, say, the Electoral College allowing someone to get the most votes in a first-past-the-post election and then not become president. Or each state getting two senators regardless of that state's population. What does the debt ceiling have in common with those two things that I just mentioned? 
Like them, it's an institution that makes even less sense now than it did when it was created, and one that always held the potential to go horribly wrong and do profound damage to American democracy. And yet, for a long time, didn't really cause any problems. Seriously. Raising the debt ceiling was a routine part of American politics for almost a century. It was like taking out the trash. Sure, every so often a few blowhards would take the event as an opportunity to bitch about how we're wasting too much whatever the metaphorical trash can is full of, or argue about who's responsible or uh, for, for the trash or whose turn it is to take it out, but ultimately we did the routine thing and, you know, just took out the trash. Same can be said for the Senate thing in the Electoral College. For, like, more than a century of history, those things, to varying degrees, basically worked. Until they didn't. For example, the Senate problem. Now, there have always been more and less populated states in America, and for a long time this didn't provide a massive and obviously unfair advantage to one particular political ideology. But I think at this point the disparity between America's biggest and smallest states has reached levels that it never had before, and that trend is set to continue. And it's, I'm sorry, just no longer sustainable that we have a system wherein a person from Wyoming has something like 70 times the political power in the Senate as somebody from California. Especially not when more and more one party is favored by the states where almost everyone lives, while the other party absolutely dominates in states whose population looks something like six ranchers, a couple of retired members of the Cheney family, and a bear. Sorry, Wyoming. Then there's the Electoral College thing. So for like more than a century, I think the 1870s onward, the Electoral College, and thus the presidency, always went to whichever candidate had won the most votes nationally. Until it didn't. In 2000, George Bush got to be the president despite getting fewer votes than Al Gore, and then again in 2016 when Donald Trump got to waddle his fat ass into the Oval Office despite losing by more than 3 million votes, and nearly again in 2020 when, but for about 40,000 votes in a few key states, it almost happened again. <laughs> Sorry to bring my gripes about the Senate and the Electoral College into an episode where I was really supposed to be talking about the debt ceiling. I just clearly felt like venting about semi-already-exploding ticking time bombs in the U.S. political system this week. To bring it back where I was originally going, now we get the story of how the debt ceiling stopped working. As I said, raising it really was about as routine politically as taking out the trash. But then in 2010, in what was probably a racist backlash to electing the first ever black president in America, we experienced the teabagger revolution, or whatever, wherein a bunch of absolute brain-dead, comically ignorant morons who could not have passed a high school civics test if they studied all night fueled by a bottle of stolen Adderall found their way into Congress. I should note that they now look like Socrates in a suit compared to some of the loudest voices in today's Republican caucus, but a monologue on the absolute meltdown of one of the U.S.'s two major political parties is something I definitely shouldn't try to jam into this episode, on top of all of the digressions about the Senate and the Electoral College when I promised you I'd really be talking about the debt ceiling. Now, I've explained in basic terms how the debt ceiling works. The debt ceiling is not new spending. It is Congress giving Treasury the authorization to borrow what it needs to in order to pay for things that we've already, that's to say Congress, has already spent money on. But it really seemed that for many of those people that I've just been insulting, the teabaggers who got elected in 2010, some of them really legitimately seemed to believe that raising the debt ceiling actually meant spending more money, which they were against, because spending and debt are bad, unless it's for oil subsidies, tax cuts for the rich, or even more border enforcement. 
But interspersed among all the idiots were certainly Republicans who understood that refusing to raise the debt ceiling doesn't cut spending, it's more akin to refusing to pay a credit card bill. Anyone who has a credit card, at least in the US, knows that not paying the credit card bill is very bad because you'll get hit with a giant interest rate in the short term and also your credit score will tank, which will have consequences that follow you around for the rest of your life. Failing to raise the debt ceiling would be cataclysmic for the US and the world economy in ways that I may or may not get into later in the episode. Really though, back in 2010 when Republicans started playing chicken with the debt ceiling, I really do believe that some of them straight up did not know how dangerous this was, but some of them definitely did. And thus was born the almost unfathomably unpatriotic and cynical strategy of Republicans threatening to do incalculable damage to the US and the world unless the Democrats give them whatever they want. This is based on them basically recognizing and then exploiting the fact that the Democrats are just more responsible than they are and thus would do almost anything to prevent this disaster from occurring. In Obama's first term, we got so close to blowing through the debt ceiling before a deal was made that the US's credit score was downgraded. I know this may sound like some small bureaucratic thing that only finance people care about, but realistically this probably cost US taxpayers billions of dollars by making it harder for the government to get cheap loans. We are, right now, staring down the barrel of the most serious debt crisis since that one that resulted in the downgrade. And this one, let's be realistic, looks a hell of a lot scarier for a couple of reasons. For one thing, we thought the teabaggers were bad, and I mean, they were, but the Republican Party now is just so much more batshit insane than it was even in 2011. I think there are a decent number of elected Republicans, probably not in the Senate, but certainly in the House, where it matters right now, who not only are willing to shoot the hostage in the form of defaulting on America's debt, they actively want to. Through some combination of sheer hatred of Democrats and liberals, weird affinity for Putin's Russia, and desire to destroy the Western liberal order that has existed since 1945, I think some of these people, to borrow a line from Alfred in, Alfred in The Dark Knight, some of these people just want to see the world burn. Related to that, during that last debt ceiling crisis, the Republicans were led by Speaker John Boehner. Now, a phenomenal, history-changing statesman John Boehner is not, dudes more tobacco and Merlot than he is man. But he was, at least, head and shoulders above Kevin, my Kevin McCarthy, almost certainly the weakest, stupidest, and least prepared, and most amoral speaker to have served in that role in the last century. For more details on just how much my Kevin McCarthy sucks, go listen to episode 32 of this show. Furthermore, what the Republicans are asking for in return for doing their basic job as members of Congress is both unserious and inconsistent. They're basically demanding that funding for everything the government does except the military and the border patrol be cut, like, in half, and to implement so-called work requirements for the meager welfare benefits that exist to try to prevent poor and unemployed Americans from being totally screwed. And yet, while claiming to want to reduce the deficit, they're also asking to extend the obscene Trump tax cuts for the uber-wealthy and somehow spend even more money on border security. Their demands also seem to have sort of changed a couple of times throughout the process, so it's hard to know exactly which insane thing they want in exchange for not blowing up the economy. Bottom line, right now the Treasury Secretary says that the deadline is just around the corner, and this is extremely scary. 
The U.S. economy, and by extension that of the rest of the world, is at a serious risk of a crisis the likes of which it's never seen before. We're talking a crash that would make 2008 look like a minor blip, which would mean profound damage to the U.S. and global economy. This would, by extension, be an absolute catastrophe for America's foreign policy and reputation at a time when the free world really just kind of can't afford to have that happen. There's never a good time, but now is an especially bad one for American democracy to basically step on a rake. Just for example, it looks like my last podcast episode was overly optimistic, and the country of Turkey is probably about to permanently vote its democracy out of existence. China continues to aggressively promote an authoritarian alternative to liberal democracy, and Russia has spent the last decade undermining democracy in its far abroad through information and cyber warfare conducted by its military intelligence units, and violently attacking and suppressing freedom and democracy in its immediate vicinity with its military and scummy mercenary groups. A global economic meltdown caused by dysfunction in the world's most powerful democracy would pose a direct national security threat to the United States and to the free world more broadly. It would help theoretically undermine the idea of democracy as a good form of government and practically undermine the most powerful and important global advocate for democracy in the form of the U.S. This manufactured crisis is something that the American Banana Republican Party is doing to the United States and the world. If the U.S. defaults, they'll try to spin it, they'll try to blame it on Biden somehow. But make no mistake, this is a 100% avoidable own goal, and Republicans are the ones kicking the ball. They're doing it because a number of them, not all Republicans, but enough of them to put us in this position, a bunch of them quite simply hate Democrats and liberals more than they love the United States and are willing to burn the country to the ground rather than see Democrats be successful in governing it. In the context of this, it is straight-up mind-bending, not to mention infuriating, that Republicans seem to think that they somehow own patriotism. Because say what you will about the Democrats, they at least have never grabbed America and the world economy by the metaphorical hair, pointed a gun at her metaphorical head and said, give us free college tuition, a fully green economy, abortion on demand at the McDonald's drive through and a trillion dollars for mandated nationwide sensitivity training or the girl gets it. You know what the really crazy thing is on top of all this? The debt ceiling, the mechanism that Republicans are using to cause this whole terrifying, comically stupid, self-inflicted crisis might not even be legal. Back just after the Civil War, before Confederate states were allowed back into the Union, the political good guys, actually the Republicans at that time, took advantage of the temporary absence of Southerners from the American political process to ram through a couple of amendments to the Constitution, mostly abolishing slavery and stating that black people are equal humans and citizens and can vote. But they also slipped into the 14th Amendment a provision that read, to paraphrase, the validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law shall not be questioned. My understanding is that this was written in there to prevent former treasonous Confederate scum who might wind up in Congress one day from being able to massively screw over the U.S. or basically hold the government hostage by, say, refusing to authorize the payment of debts incurred by the American government in their efforts to defeat the Confederates and the wicked and disgusting cause they were fighting for when they seceded from and attacked the Union. To me, that sounds at least a little bit like what Republicans are threatening to do now. I mean, in practical terms, their approach is basically, we don't like the government when Democrats are running it and hate the notion of it doing anything to help poor people, provide health care, or protect the environment from our friends in the extraction industry. 
Thus, we will now basically destroy its ability to function by blocking payment of the debts largely racked up by the tax cuts for the rich that we passed back when we were in power. I'm no lawyer, nor do I play one on TV. But that does kind of sound like exactly what that provision of the 14th Amendment was written to prevent. I am definitely not alone in thinking that because a lot of people have floated the idea that Biden should just say, F*** you, this entire system is unconstitutional per the 14th Amendment, my Treasury Department will do what is necessary to pay what we owe because the United States is not a deadbeat. The problem with that approach is that if Biden were to do that, the question would then almost certainly end up before the Supreme Court. A body that I well, often write off, sometimes on this show, as really nothing more than an unelected legislature of politicians in black dresses dominated by a supermajority of theocratic Republican operatives. But who knows? Maybe faced with a crisis of this magnitude, two of the six right-wing justices could be coaxed into putting the good of the country first, if only temporarily. To be fair, they do seem to have mostly done that in the face of various of Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election. On that question of whether Biden should take the risk of telling Speaker Mike Kevin and the Banana Republicans to pound sand and just invoke the 14th Amendment, I think that the most prudent route here is to look to the more astute observers of the Supreme Court, which I certainly don't pretend to be, to see how they think that the justices would land on a potential case here. I actually kind of wonder why no one has just gone ahead and brought this before the court before now. I was chatting earlier with a friend who happens to work for the Department of Justice who was wondering the same thing. So I think it is actually a pretty decent question. And as close as we are to the abyss right now, I kind of wish somebody with more power had taken a shot at this a little earlier. Obviously, it would be better to use the 14th Amendment to kill the ridiculous notion of a debt ceiling when the stakes weren't this high. But, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda. My instinct is that Biden should probably do it. This is an absurd situation for all the reasons I've outlined in this episode, and those who care about the United States and the world simply can't keep allowing themselves to be repeatedly rolled by political hostage takers who at this point really appear to be all but salivating at the prospect of blowing everything up. Of all the structural problems in the U.S. political system, and there are many, this is both one of the most dangerous and actually one that has at least the potential to have a pretty easy fix. Who knows? Maybe Biden and Mike Heaven will come to a deal in the next week before the whole thing explodes, and wouldn't that be nice? But you know what sounds nicer to me? Biden never again having to hand China a massive PR victory by being forced to bail early on the G7 and important visits to allies in the South Pacific because he had to come back to make an emergency trip to Washington to ask Kevin McCarthy not to let the most glassy-eyed, batshit insane traitorous members of the Banana Republican Caucus destroy the global economy to make a point that they're not even making correctly. Guess we'll just have to see. Well, that's it for this episode of OK Talks. If you're liking the show and haven't done so already, hit subscribe or follow or whatever it is on your preferred podcast platform. Also, please, please do me a favor and leave a review and, most importantly, share the show on social media or with anybody you think might get something out of it. I hate repeatedly asking for that as much as you're tired of hearing it, but it really is critical to this show getting off the ground, so please do it. As always, I'd like to thank my friend Nate Wright for having designed the podcast artwork and you for listening. Oh, and sorry again about the terrible sound quality on this one. Yeesh.